Welcome in, everybody, to my favorite time of the week when I get to make my voice sound like it has a future. This is Sad Times. My name is Kevin. I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you're joining us for the first time, well, fuck. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Let me tell you a little bit about what Sad Times is. Sad Times is a show in which each week we have a guest on who tells about times that they were upset, sad, angry, frustrated, went through the proverbial shit, as it were, and how they reacted to it, how those around them reacted to it. The goal here is not to solve this. It's not to diagnose the problem. It is mainly to make sure that we are allowing people to tell their stories and that you at home are able to hear them and are able to say, hey, wait a minute, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. So that's kind of the goal. Now, Brent will be very proud of me. I'm now going to say the part about the email address. If you do want to be on the show, we would love to have you, and we can explain to you exactly how it works because these are pretty vulnerable conversations. You can email us at sadtimeskc at gmail.com. That's K as in ketchup and C as in catsup. That's sadtimeskc at gmail.com. And obviously, if you search, obviously, I don't even know what's obvious about this. If you search Sad Times on Facebook, we got ourselves a group. And uh, in the next six to eight years, I hope to maybe, maybe make an Instagram if I can bring myself to it. And that's a big if. So before we get started, we do, as always, have two sponsors. The first one is one that Brent found. Uh, thank you, Brent. So let's go ahead with that one. Uh, the sponsor is the benevolent forces of the ruling classes that gave us Labor Day. And that, it says here, what? You want more? What, more than one day? What are you going to do on a second day? Have more picnics? Seriously? Jesus, fuck. Keep on wanting. Get back on that goddamn assembly line, goddammit. Jesus Christ, Brent. I Yeah, it goes with every other sponsor you found. But thank you, Brent. I, I love the money. I, I will say that. And the other sponsor is one I unfortunately found. And this sponsor is that guy next to me at the bar that one time who tried to justify wealth inequality by saying that rich people also had mental health problems. Well, there appears to be no ad copy here because, well, that's a bastardization of human suffering as well as a free pass to insane wealth while people with no money and mental health issues are apparently doing just fine. Okay, great. All right. And as you know, always you can use the code FAKE, F-A-K-E, uh, when you go to support our sponsors. Please support our sponsors or Brent will kill me. All right, let's get to the show. We have a very special show today. We have my, uh, I've called him my mentor for over 20 years, uh, as he has been my mentor for over 20 years. I've known him for over 22 years now. His name is Bill. Bill, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you, Kevin. All right, good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. So let's tackle it right away. You are my mentor. Uh, we met in 2001, at the uh, very beginning of the year of 2001, when I auditioned for a little show called Gross Indecency, and you were kind enough and benevolent enough to cast me in that show, and it still is the best show that I myself have ever been a part of, and I've been a part of a number of shows. So that's how I met you. You were mm -hmm. a professor of mine, yes? Yes. And um, we have just become good friends. We traveled 
on a fucking Amtrak train to Boston for some auditions. <laughs> we did. Yeah. And you yeah. have this insane ability to just go, I'm going to go to sleep now and then just put your hat over your eyes like you're fucking Indiana Jones and go to sleep. Well, I just sat there and then thank God that there was a smoking car because there was a smoking car and I smoked. And we played, uh, we played cards with some people. We, we didn't even meet until we were on the train and they were in the cafe car Playing, uh, playing 99, I think. We joined in their game. I remember that. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, very much so. It was a very uh, Bill thing to do. Make friends <laughs> and play cards, right? Card playing with strangers, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, 24 hours there, 24 hours back on the beautiful Amtrak. And because uh, I was a college student and you've always been a thrifty person, we uh, both sat just in regular coach seating. We didn't have like any right. sort of place to lay down. But again... Uh, Indiana Jones Bill here can just put his hat over his eyes and immediately be asleep. And I slept maybe 20 minutes. An old smoking car Crispin. Yeah, yeah. smoking car Crispin. You know, that's what they, they used to call me back uh, back in college. No, they didn't. But they did know me by my cough. So there's there's that. <laughs> now, Bill, when I met you in 2001, how long had you been a professor of theater? Uh, that was my, that, I guess that was my fourth year at Southern Illinois University. And prior to that, I had I had done a one year replacement position at the University of California, Davis, a few years prior. OK, yeah. And I had before I met you, I was uh, I had seen you at Community Floss shows. Now, Community Floss is the improv group I was a part of, but I'd never spoken to you and I mm -hmm. didn't know who you were. And Brent wouldn't let me look him in the eye to ask him the question. So I just went on not knowing. <clears throat> so, uh, Bill, you and I have been through a lot. Uh, we have done many shows together. We've done a show <laughs> together about Johnny Appleseed. We've done <laughs> Cabaret yeah. together. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll have Thumb Fun for all the Johnny Appleseed yeah. fans out there. And at Johnny Appleseed, you were the music director. You were not the director yeah. director. Right. So you, how, what, how old were you when you started playing music? I was probably about five. My mom taught me a little bit of, uh, just taught me some basic rudiments of piano. And I didn't get serious about it. I took piano lessons from right around then uh, for, for years, um, continually. But I never got serious about it till I was probably, I think, a junior in high school. And I was accompanying for the, for the chorus at the high school and so forth. And the, the director of the chorus told me about a piano competition for high school juniors and seniors that was happening in Ohio. And I, I wanted to be part of it. And then I knuckled down and started really practicing. And I got, you know, it's a funny thing about practice. I got a lot better really fast once mm. I committed to it. And, and that really, yeah, that, that took me in a, in a whole new direction really where I was super serious about my music and not just theater. Yeah. And you, ever since I've known you, you've always had a piano. Uh, when we, when a bunch of us would always come over, we, with uh, sometimes locals and we'd all play cards at your house and you'd always have the, the piano when you, when, when yep. you lived with Nathan and everything. And, yep. but also you played piano, you got serious when you were a junior. You also had a, a real fascination with the Billboard Top 40 charts. Can you oh, tell yeah. us a little that bit about that? Right. So that started when I was 12. Um, and actually the impetus for it was that I, I really liked being, I was an extremely good student and I liked that. I, 
I liked being the first one to be able to answer questions. You know, whenever some, something came up, whether or not I was called on, I, I knew the answer in my head. And one day in music class, the teacher had had brought singles. I think she was trying to, you know, appeal to the to the sort of pop sensibilities of the class instead of just singing Alueta or something like that. Right. <laughs> so she started putting these uh, singles on a little record player. And we had a contest to see who could be the first one to say what the what the song was. Well, I didn't pay any attention to it. I didn't have older siblings. Um, I didn't know anything about pop music. I mean, my dad liked Roger Miller. I knew some Roger Miller music, and I knew some of my dad's music from the 50s and early 60s. But I did not know what was going on in 70s music. And even though I was in no way actually humiliated by this experience, I felt in my mind like, oh, my, I can't not know this. There can't be this area about which I know nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I started uh, just paying attention, like, like, if I could find a place that had the top 10 published or something, I always tried to know what those were. And I started listening to the radio. And then one day, I heard this guy named Casey Kasem counting down the top 40. And I was like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And I became seriously committed to it. I mean, I every week, I wrote down Everything. I wrote down the entire top 40 every week without fail. I would, I suppose, still to prove myself to my to my classmates at school, I would type out the list and I'd take it to school. Oh, wow. So people could see what they were if they wanted to know, you know. And um, yeah, I remember it was on a couple different stations and one of them started earlier than another. It was on Sunday mornings. So I would listen for an hour before we went to church and then we would have to listen the 15 minute drive to church. We'd have it on in the car so I could write things down. And then when we came out of church, uh, another radio station would be just past where the first one was when we went into church. So I could catch everything every Sunday. Yeah. So American Top 40 was a really, really big thing to me. And it was my my specialty. It became my specialty area of trivia. And sorry, how old were you when you started doing this? Twelve. Twelve. Okay. Was, Sorry, uh, uh, I might have missed uh, that. To be to be really Kevin Crispin about it, it was the last weekend of March in 1977. It's not funny, Brent. It's just accurate. Uh, yes, the last uh, so two months before Star Wars came out. How about that? Right. Well, yes, and the the London Symphony Orchestra version of the Star Wars title theme got to number ten, but it started very quickly to fade out of popularity because Miko Minardo with his uh, disco discofied version of the star wars and cantina theme <laughs> quickly started getting all the airplay instead and that fall jumped from number eight to number one which is a really unusual thing it was only there for two weeks replaced by debbie boone's you light up my life so there's a little sample into my 13 year old brain i love that and just those little sections of history Right. Yes. That nowadays, sure. I believe there's still a billboard top 100, hot 100 or top 40. Yeah, or, they do it. They figure it completely differently now. And mm-hmm. I could go on about what a travesty it is. But anyway, yes, it still exists. Yes. Uh, I, I just think it's so fucking cool. And maybe it's because I was uh, you weren't you do not sound like you were a lonely kid. I was I I would be lonely on the weekends uh, and I would read entertainment almanacs. And, um, that's how I learned all of the Oscars and all that shit. So like very, very similar, very similar thing. And you, you being a, uh, a musician, you, you, I remember when, you know, I would just go on and on about the Beatles, uh, 
not unlike today. And shut up, Brent. (laughs) And um, you'd be like, yes, yes, Kevin. Yes, yes. Uh, And you'd say, well, in classical music, it's much more complicated. You would say it in a different way. But when you and I were talking last week, you were saying in classical music, there are kind of some specific unspoken rules. Uh, And do you remember what those were? Like, give me an example. Right. They're, they are, I think they, they may not be spoken by the general populace, but they're certainly spoken in a school of music. Like I have, I, I know someone who uh, is a, was quite an accomplished pianist. And then she kind of got out of it to raise a family and so forth. And then she wanted to get back in. She wanted to study again, even though she was very accomplished, she wanted to continue her studies with a professor at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. And she was probably Oh, 55 at the time, maybe a little older. And she went down to play for this person because you sort of have to audition to get into the studio. And she told me he just ripped into her because she was playing her Mozart as though it were Chopin. That's fucked up. Doesn't she, doesn't she know the difference? Yes. You know, there's such a, uh, and, and she left there uh, humbled. And um, yeah, she was she was really kind of upset. By, or not kind of, she was definitely upset by the conversation. And uh, there, there is a lot of that, you know, like you can't, your, your Bach should not be emotional. It has to be very, very dry, very sort of intellectual. Mm. Part of that's because the music is played on the piano now, but it was composed for harpsichord. Harpsichord, harpsichord doesn't have the capability of putting in the kind of emotional expression. So therefore, Bach would never have heard the music with that kind of emotional expression or conceived of a keyboard piece being played that way. So there's all that kind of stuff that you that you come to know about about classical music. Yeah. Well, it, due to his inability to be emotional, that's why we never invite Bach on this show. But Brent, I know you've got our, <laughs> right. our shopping list over there. We need to pick up some uh, Mozart and Chopin. I assume that's ice cream. Okay. But I bring up those specific rules because pop music has rules too in, in its way. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to you I think it's been about three weeks now yeah. because the way that I speak about the Beatles or the way that I speak about Bob Dylan or these artists who mean so much to me. Reverentially. You, reverentially. Yes, exactly. Is that a word or is it reverently? Uh, oh, yeah. I don't know, but it makes me think of the good old Mark Twain quote, which is the, the road to hell is paved with adverbs, which I, I think <laughs> is hilarious. Um, and uh, Tina Turner passed away and yes. you since I've known you really have spoke reverentially about Tina Turner. And we're going to get into, of course, some of that. But when I saw that me and every other human being on planet earth thought of you first, uh, not Tina Turner's family, Bill. And we reached out to you because she has meant so much to you. So I reached out and I said, would you like to be on the show to talk about what she has meant to you? And you said, who is this? I said, Oh, I'm sorry. It's Kevin. Uh, so we're going to get into that, but you described Tina to me when we've talked before as a buster of rules. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean by that? Well, I think there, there are a number of things. One, one thing that stands out to me, she did an interview on the, well, she and I did a, an interview on the Dick Cavett show in the early seventies. And he asked her who her influences were, and she didn't name any women. She talked about Ray Charles specifically. I know she talked to, who else did she talk about? Uh, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke. 
And then she even acknowledges, you know, it was it was men's voices. And that's because women didn't perform the way that men did. You know, there was a roughness that certainly like Ray Charles, for example, sure. we associate him with an ability to really do some rough sounding stuff, you know, and that was unacceptable for women. So from the very beginning, that was the role modeling, you know, for her. That was what she, at least what she was talking about in that interview. So so there's that, right? Stepping outside the expectation for somebody of of her sex. Um, you know, everybody's been talking about since she passed, you know, about her uh, being, for example, being coming out of of well, she had so many things stacked against her, right? She's she's a woman mm-hmm. in the industry. She's black mm-hmm. in the industry and wanting to make music that is palatable to white audiences, not just be associated with R&B, but she wanted to do rock and roll, right? Uh, she's old. She was, for the comeback, I mean, you know, she was 44 years old when she had her comeback. So all these strikes are sort of against her and none of that is supposed to work. Now, I guess that's, those aren't rules she specifically broke, but, uh, but those are, are ways in which she was um, a first and really unusual. I guess I'd say one of the rules that she broke was then she took hold of she took charge of her career in uh, in a way. I mean, in, obviously in collaboration with her manager, and said it's not just playing stadiums is not just for the Rolling Stones and Bruce Springsteen. I want to play those venues. I can do that wow and that's that simply was not being done you know certainly by solo women and at the time that she started doing that by the way in her later years she she sort of went back to a more i sort of model where she had backup singers mm-hmm. and da- backup singer dancers who mm-hmm. were women when i first saw her in 1985 and when she first started playing those stadiums it was her and a sax player a couple keyboardists a bass player and a pianist and that was it. It was Tina and the band. And that was it. And so it was unheard of that she'd done something like that. So I guess that's wow. what I really mean by being a being a rule buster in that way. Yeah, I I did not know that about the stadiums. Uh, Brent, August 15th, 1965, the Beatles played the first ever stadium show. Is that right? Yeah, that's a Chase Stadium, Brent. Brent, ow, don't, ow. Okay. Well, and you said you saw her first in 1985. When did right. you first, when and how did you first come across her music? Right. Well, uh, <clears throat> the first, I, it, well, okay. So she had a single on American Top 40 in the spring, probably April of 1984. Let's Stay Together, which had been been a big hit and her sort of comeback announcement in Europe. It didn't do well in the US. It got to like number 26, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I heard that and I, you know, I wrote it down dutifully, which I was still doing, even though that's seven years after middle school. And uh, so I was aware of her and aware that she existed. But then I went into a record store in probably early June of 1984. Mm-hmm. So a few weeks later. And uh, back then we had record stores, you know, and you, oh, you went in and you. It's like walking yeah. into Spotify. Oh, well, yeah, I guess in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you you like touched the record. You went through, you like riffled through what was in the section for a given artist and kind of looked at things and just walked around and saw, I, I don't know, you just, it was a, 
yeah, it was a way of seeing what was happening musically. Uh, another way of seeing. And so I walked into this record store and over the speaker system in the store, I heard something that absolutely arrested me. I mean, just bam, right then. And it was a song that I recognized because it was a disco band called Eruption, mm -hmm. who in 1977 or 78, I'm not sure, had a minor hit single in the top 40 called I Can't Stand the Rain. Mm -hmm. Like I say, it was a disco arrangement of this. And so I knew the song from that. But all of a sudden, I'm hearing it in a completely different tempo with, with a, instead of like a, a sort of blithe disco singing of the lyrics, right? This was an emotionally committed, painful sounding, wrenching reading of these lyrics. When we were together, everything was so grand. Now that we've parted, there's one thing I can't stand. I can't stand the rain, right? But And it was specifically that bridge section that I heard. And I had to know immediately. I did not recognize it as Tina Turner's voice because mm -hmm. I only knew the one single, right? And so I went, to the, I went right to the front desk to the cashier and I said, what is this? And he said, this is Tina Turner's new album. And I walked to the bin and picked it up. And the name of that record was Private Dancer? Private Dancer, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so that was, it's, it's rare. I mean, there are a handful of songs or, or bands that I think when I heard them for the first time, I remember when I first heard them because it was something about the sound that really attracted me and seemed just, it just made something click in my head. But that voice at that moment, I had to have that album. And so that's that. Yeah, that's that's really the first encounter. Okay, first meaningful encounter with her voice. And I think you use terms like raw and emotion, etc., with yeah. what you heard in that voice. And we're going to come back to that because, like all great artists, at least in my estimation, they explain the world back to you. Or as some other artist named William Shakespeare said, you know, they hold the mirror up to nature. Right. right. And yeah. so but let's 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 go back. So you were how old were you when you were were you 19, 20? 19. I was about to turn 20. Yeah. Okay. About to have a birthday. Yeah. All right. So you're about to turn 20. And mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that you have no older siblings, but you have many younger siblings, uh five, yes. I believe. Yeah. And In fact, my yeah, my youngest sister wasn't born yet at that point. Wow. Yeah. So you were the first kid for, for your parents, and yep. when you were 19, same age as yep. when you met Tina at the record yes. store, yeah. you also came out to your parents um, right. as being gay. And right. did can you tell us about that? Now, what, yeah. what, I, what I mean by tell us about that, it's such... It's now more of a universal experience than we ever thought it was, right? We were led to believe right. that this is something that is. But tell us about uh, the classes that your dad had taken, and um, <laughs> right. and yeah. and just kind of that is a difficult conversation. I've not had to have that conversation. I know many people who have, and that is such a hard. I I have to imagine it's a very difficult conversation. So so tell us about kind of how that went. Right. So. Uh, I'll go chronologically because we'll start with the, the thing about my dad's classes. So my dad was getting, when I was, <clears throat> before I was 10, my dad was uh, in graduate school a lot. He was um, 
he got his master's degree when I was a child and then uh, was working on his doctorate. And as part of his doctorate, because he has an EDD uh, education, mm-hmm. and so he was taking some educational psychology classes and some psychology classes, right? And this is in the early 70s. <clears throat> and uh, among the things that I was aware happened in his classes, because they, you know, might be, he would come home and he would talk about that. Um, he would talk about what was going on in the classes, not necessarily me, but to my mom, you know, I would hear these conversations. And uh, I think he had a class, I might be mistaken about this, but it seems to me it was a class called Abnormal Psychology. And they had a guest speaker. They would bring in some guest speakers into the class. And one of the guests that they brought in was a homosexual. Wait, and, wait, sorry. So yeah. they brought in a guest speaker to abnormal psychology. Right. They brought in a homosexual. Right. And like I say, I, I, I'm not sure that's what the class was, but this, this is at least the way that I remember. Sure. It's the way that mm-hmm. I perceived it when yeah, I was of course. Know, eight years old, 10 years old, something like that. And uh, so I heard my parents talking about that. I don't know when I had some kind of vague awareness that may, may have been through those conversations that such a thing as homosexuality existed. Um, I knew my, what my reality was as a prepubescent child, you know, but I didn't, I didn't really know anything about sex and I certainly didn't know anything about homosexuality, but, but the, the first things I remember hearing about it are connected with this, uh, this idea of abnormal psychology. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I don't, I don't blame anyone for that. I mean, we were, we were evolving in our understanding. Right. I mean, this Uh, is so 1973, that's four years after Stonewall. So, I mean, it's still, very, very far back. And, and I'm a few miles away in southwestern Ohio, also a few miles away from Stonewall. <laughs> Just a few. So it takes, I think it's it takes 11. A time for, for some news to travel, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so there was that. And then, uh, so in the spring of 84, within, I, I would say, you know, plus or minus probably two weeks of this Tina Turner discovery, uh, I was at home at my mom and dad's home home for the summer from college and it was a really it was a beautiful evening uh we we had a bonfire out back my parents have a pond we we were running laps around the pond there were four children at that point and uh all four of the kids were running laps around the pond together you know nathan was nathan was four oh man chugging around the damn right he was my brother who was quite athletic was doing it my sister so all of us running around the track it was just a nice warm family evening Right. And then um, my brother went up to the house to talk to his girlfriend on the phone. Mm-hmm. And my sister was up at the house with Nathan for whatever, you know, Nathan needed something. I don't know. Uh, anyway, she took Nathan inside. So it was me. It was dark by this time. Uh, and it was me and my mom and dad out by the fire. And I had wanted to say something to them for a while about my sexuality. And, um, I, I felt like that was going to be important for you to, for me to communicate at some point. Right. And so, so I chose that moment and, uh, and it made my mother cry. Uh, I, my recollection is that my first thing my dad said was, are you sure? And I said, yes. And then that was 
he didn't say anything else for a while. He, I, I think he came later that night. I think he came to the door of my room and asked me a couple of things, but it was a, it was an awkward, well, all of it was awkward. <laughs> yeah. A conversation later, I remember being a little more awkward and, um, but I knew, I, I do think it's important for me to clarify, like in that situation, and I'm, I'm incredibly privileged in so many ways. And among the ways in which I'm privileged is that uh, my parents are great parents and they're great people. And they, in fact, have uh, something I appreciate about that they're in their 80s now, you know, they, they are constantly inquiring and evolving their perspective on things. They didn't get stuck believing everything that they first heard in the 1940s. Unfortunately, that's probably more rare than not. Yeah, there are people who are stuck there and they didn't get stuck, you know, believing everything long term that my dad learned in his abnormal psychology class. Right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so there was not a question in my mind of support on, on the deepest level. I mean, there are people still who come out to their parents with the fear that they're going to be cast out of the family. And that, that was never part of it for me. I mean, there was, there was no way that that was going to happen. I don't know what I expected and I didn't expect a parade. I'll tell you that, but, <laughs> uh, but I didn't, my belief in my parents' commitment to me as their child was absolutely unshaken. And one of the reasons for that is that the first conversation I remember having in my life Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that this is this is the very first one. This is the first conversation. First Any conversation, conversation I recall. Wow. I have mm -hmm. I have memories of like I have memories of seeing things and feeling things. Like I have visual images from before this conversation. But this is the first actual conversation that I recall from my childhood. And how old are you? And, uh four. Okay. Because we were living, we were living in a house, a little house on Apache Street in Norman, Oklahoma. My father was working on his master's degree, and uh, mom and I. Well, and Russell had to be there. He was an infant, but he had to be with us. So we were home at, during the day with with mom, and we went out to run some errands. And while we were out, apparently, I don't remember this part of it, but I know that's what started the conversation. While we were out, we saw a mixed race couple. And this is 1968 or possibly early 69. So this is not a, an, a generally accepted thing at that time, you know, right. um, certainly at some, in some parts of the U.S. And I don't know who initiated the conversation between me and mom, but we talked about it. And uh, she said that some people would not understand those two people being together, choosing to be together, loving each other. I don't remember exactly what she said. That's not the part that I remember the most clearly, but I didn't understand that it didn't make sense to me. And I said, what do you mean? Uh, do you mean that people would make fun of them? And she sort of went with that because that's what, you know, I mean, that, that's what a four year old, I guess. Would that's sort of your, yeah. She's going to get meet you where you are. Right. Uh, yes. People, people would make fun of them. And then I asked, uh, you know, so, but what would happen if 
if I grew up and I married a black girl? And mom said, I would love her because you loved her, but I would worry about you. And I knew that what she meant was that she would worry because people would be unkind. Mm -hmm. So I hope you see the connection I'm making then to 1984, right? So I know that this is the sort of baseline with my folks. And, and, and honestly, even though dad and I had never had a comparable conversation, the thing is, you know, in, my parents are enough of their time that when it came to emotional things, there was no doubt in my mind that my dad would follow my mother's lead. It's not like my mom would say, well, we accept you and love you for who you are. And my dad would say, well, wait a minute here. That, that, <laughs> there was no way that that would happen um, because there was that sort of, you know, division of emotional labor or something like that was, was definitely operating. So. So I had no doubt that there would be that there would be acceptance. I, I I have to say a few things. One, it's one of the things that I have the hardest time accepting or or understanding is when, um, as you kind of referenced, so many people do come out to their parents and they are excommunicated from the family. I yeah. do. It, it drives me insane. I do not understand it. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be. We are here to propagate the species, right? And that is your child, and you're telling me that you're just not going to speak with them anymore. I don't. I it, it's 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 a it's very difficult for me to wrap my head around. The other thing is on February twenty first, two thousand four, you almost married a black woman when uh, you were dancing with Jalinda to sign sealed <laughs> delivered at the parade cast party, and it was right. fucking awesome. And this uh, all yeah. comes full circle because look, I said I didn't need a parade, but there I was at the parade <laughs> fast exactly. party dancing with Wilson. Yeah, we referred to Jalinda and I uh, jokingly used to refer to each other as husband and wife. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I love Jalinda and Jalinda does have an episode uh, earlier in the sad times days. Uh, so everybody, please go check that out. It's a wonderful story. Um, so you come out to your parents. They're loving. They're accepting. Sure, it's a little awkward because that's kind of an awkward conversation. And around yeah. this time, you I believe you were dating your – were you dating I your first boyfriend. boyfriend at that time? I had, yeah, I had a boyfriend. Okay. Yeah. And Which my parents did not know. Did not know that. Okay. Right. And, but it wasn't long after that that you guys uh, broke up. Do I have my timeline right? Yeah. Yeah, basically. It's, it's within a year. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to Tina Turner. Yeah. Around the time that you came out, you found Tina Turner and you said raw right. and emotion about her voice. Right. When you went through that breakup and, and I know it was not, you know, the most damning thing in, of your life. It was not the worst heartbreak, right. any of that. Yeah. Did you lean on music at that time? When, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. I remember I was, I had a, um, I had a single room at Indiana university at that time. And, uh, you know, I had my stereo there and what I remember, I mean, I had, I had a number of albums there, probably all the albums I owned. I didn't own that many, but, um, I remember Paul Young, Tina Turner. Oh, the original cast recording by Vita for what that's worth. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, there were definitely times when I, sat in my room and 
played music. I mean, that, that's not that unusual, I guess. But so, so yeah, music was, it, it was part of the whole, the whole process. Right. Yeah. And I didn't, uh, one advantage to the fact that I was there, I was far away from home, which was both a blessing and a curse. Right. Because I, I really missed having the emotional support of my family while that was going on. But, uh, but at the same time, I wasn't around anybody that I knew from my past, like the the local people, the people I grew up with. I had new friends at Indiana University, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't as I wasn't closeted with them. Well, I was closeted with a lot of them. the people I knew. Well, I wasn't closeted, you know. Like, uh, and I could actually tell them that I was upset because I'd been dumped by my boyfriend, I, and that I- was a plus. About- yeah, I want to point something out here because I don't think a lot of people think of it this, uh, realize this. You just said, okay, I have my friends, some I'm out to, some I'm not. The ones I was out to, I was able to say, I am hurt. I am going through this. I am whatever it was you were feeling at the time. Those you right. were not out to, you could not have that conversation. No, no. And uh, that's it's one of the things that, yes, as you say, I think a lot of people don't really recognize this. The thing about being certainly, certainly when I was growing up and I don't know as much about things now. Right. But like when I was in that age bracket, uh, being closeted also meant that you had to be not only secretive about your attractions or secretive about your dating life, but you had to be secretive about your heartbreak. Like there, you, so much of it had to be repressed and hidden because what if somebody asks, well, what's the matter? Then how do you, what are you going to say about that? Because saying I just got dumped starts a conversation about things that I'm not willing to talk about. I don't think that anyone in my family was ever aware of that breakup at all, at all. Um, and if they knew that I was having a rough time, it is likely that they attributed it to the fact that I was further away from home or that maybe because some stuff was happening with in terms of my uh, uncertainty about my major at that point. I think there would have been perhaps other things that they would have thought, oh, well, this is probably what's going on. Um, and I let them think that because I didn't want to. I mean, the thing is, you know, again, then, and I think in many ways it's different for a lot of young people now, but I'm not having the experience, so I don't know. Uh, you didn't come out once. You came out and came out and came out and came out, and it was exhausting. Like, everybody you encounter, it's this new thing of like, oh, well, you don't understand, but see, I'm gay. And you <laughs> and you had to have a, a such a level of trust before you would do that. I, I ran it by a couple friends. I had trial runs before I came out to my parents because... I, I needed to just sort of try that out first with a couple of close friends because the experience just kept on happening. It wasn't like one day I suddenly leapt out in front of everyone and said, here I am and started waving a rainbow flag around because that didn't even exist at that time, you know? So that's another solid yeah. point. I think that a lot of us don't think about um, when I say us, I mean like people who grew up straight, uh, that you have to come out multiple times. It's and and maybe you're right. Maybe it is different now with social media. I don't know, but and and the fact that you had to have a rehearsal to say this is who I am. Right. Yeah. I broke. I, I broke the news to my best friend at college first. You know, uh, as I recall, like I 
right that was not long before coming out to mom and dad at all because and i, I if i if memory serves i think he kind of uh helped encourage me to go in that direction but yeah like i so i came out to my parents the night that i talked about and i'm not going to bore you with the details of the others but then later i came out to my brother and then later i came out to my sister and then after that i came out to another brother and then after that a couple years later i came out to another brother you know what i mean it just it never stopped i think exhausting it it sure sounds exhausting and that that continues into the well on some level it continues into the present mm. you know i i still feel there are suddenly situations that i'm in where i think oh uh, this person hasn't picked up on this. I guess I need to come out to them. You know, I need to say something. Uh, when I taught, I taught for a year at the University of California, Davis, as mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier. And the one of the office, uh, I, I guess, I don't know what her title was. She was in a secretarial role in the office. And she was always fr very friendly to me and so forth. And then she started talking to me about her niece. Well, like, pretty aggressively talking about it. Like it, it kept escalating. She's like, Oh, you need to get together sometime. And I didn't know what to do. I felt like I, I felt so trapped, you know, and I wound up, I went on a sort of date with her niece. Uh, and you know, this, this young woman was, she was, uh, clearly sort of nervous about this she, probably in her early twenties. Right. And she, she was done up and she was behaving very properly and so forth. And the whole thing was such a sham. I, I felt bad for her because she felt awkward. And I felt like she was there thinking that she was supposed to impress me. I, I was just sort of walking through it so I could get this woman in the office to stop harping on it because I wasn't out. And that, at that time I was in my thirties. So you weren't out to like the, 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 the um, faculty at Davis is what you're saying. No. Okay. No. Um, okay. I yeah. wasn't, I wouldn't say I was out professionally. I mean, there were people here and there who knew, but I wasn't out professionally until I was in my late thirties. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, and, uh, I mean, I think it might not have been that hard for people to figure out. And yet people continually didn't figure it out. Like <laughs> I look at me, my profile, who I was, I, I'm not the most masculine guy. Right. Uh, you and had the yet, you had the cast record to Evita, right? Yeah, let's let's be real. Uh, but and yet somehow people kept misunderstanding, and then then you know you want to be you want to make friends, and uh, you know, make friends with somebody, and you're hanging out with them, and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, okay, so at some point I have to tell this male friend of mine that I'm gay. And I don't want there's that that whole conversation is so fraught then, right? Because it's like, okay, so then is he going to so so we've been hanging out a lot, just the two of us doing stuff together. We we have dinner sometimes. We and now we're one evening I'm thinking of somebody in particular. I don't know if he'd want his name mentioned, but uh somebody that you also know mm -hmm. that you're acquainted with at least. And you know, we were out having uh maybe a snack or something, a drink after rehearsal at the Mississippi Flyway. Oh yeah. And I was thinking, okay, so I need to say something. This is a, but you know, what if all of a sudden there's like this wall, this curtain that descends between the two of us because suddenly he's like, oh, is that why we're hanging out? Because you're attracted to me? Do you play that through in your head where you're like, I have to let this person know that 
but I must follow it up very quickly with, I don't find you attractive. Like, uh, is it, is it? Well, that's, yeah. You know what? That's awkward too, because of course you don't really want to say that. Right. Of course. I guess. But, um, I, I think I, I don't remember really saying that ever. I guess I relied on my, I relied on the nature of our friendship to help that not be a problem. But it sure, I mean, I remember some of those times, like the time I'm thinking about it, the flyway, you know, I was like, I remember physically trembling when I was thinking, I need, I need to have this conversation. This has, this has to happen. Oh, it's just, I'm sorry that you, you had to go through that. And I'm sorry for anyone who has to go through something that does make their body, you know, physically tremble like that, especially when you're with somebody who's your friend. Yes. Yeah. Um, And again, not to say that that person was going to pass judgment on you, but you were worried. Uh, Tell me if I'm wrong. you, You go ahead. Yeah, I definitely was. And I, and what I hear, I was reading an article. I can't, you know, I have no citation for this. Not long ago, I was reading something that was talking about how difficult it is for young men to make friends. Like this is a real, this is a sort of an epidemic thing in the US that people feel so unconnected and it's difficult for them to make friends. And one of the things they were speculating about in the article, and maybe not speculate, maybe even having some foundation for was uh, men are, are men have a hard time approaching other men and asking if they want to be friends because there is this sort of gay panic thing going on, right? Where it's like, so I work with this guy. Uh, I don't have anything to do. I know he doesn't have anything to do because he's single. So I could ask him out for a drink, but then what's mm-hmm. he going to think is going on? Mm-hmm. So I do, I have to go up to him and be like, uh, yo bro. So I was hey. thinking, right. Do you, you have to, play that role want to go watch the football say, hey i'm not gay this isn't that if you were naked in front of me i'd turn the other way want to go have a drink like that seems like an unnecessarily awkward way That's a to much. ask them to try to yeah. start a friendship <laughs> uh <laughs> yes fair <laughs> sorry i'm just oh man that that is a funny thing to say to somebody though so you know you said that you weren't out professionally generally, I think you said till your late thirties. Um, right. in, in your early thirties though, you went through what was probably correct me if I'm wrong, at least up to that point, And if not the whole, the, the most difficult breakup of your life. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, Absolutely. before we get into the sad shit, I yeah. do love the story of how you two met. Do you want to kind of tell us how he found oh, yeah. you? Yeah. So, okay. So I I was directing, I was a freelance director for a number of years and I was directing in Sarasota, Florida. And that was a whole long way, long, long way away from Southwestern Ohio. And I was at that point. Okay. So I, you know, all right. So I wasn't professionally out of the closet until my late thirties. That's, that's a true statement, but that includes academia. Like I was I was out to everybody in Florida and yeah. in that mm-hmm. theater community. And I was very comfortable with that. Academia, I guess, pushes the door closed again for a little while. But um, so I directed a production of the play Jeffrey, which was this sort of landmark play at the time because it was a comedy about AIDS. Not, not that AIDS was funny, but it, you know, it, 
the characters in it were grappling with issues related to AIDS, and yet the play was a comedy. And this was this was a big deal. It was a big deal in New York. Um, the theater that I was working at was the first theater to get the rights after the show closed in New York. Oh wow! So this was a really big deal. Huge premiere of this show. Um, the gay population of Sarasota, and there was quite a large gay population in Sarasota. Uh, people were elated that this show was coming to Sarasota, and everybody was very excited about the show. So, as is often true for a director, I stayed through opening night, saw the show on its feet, mm -hmm. I went home. And then I came back for the closing weekend. Uh, I don't 100% remember why, but I came back and I, I came down with a friend. And uh, my friend knew other people in Sarasota, so went off to visit with them. And I had this chance meeting with this guy who had seen the play, had seen Jeffrey the night before and recognized my face from the photo that was in the program of me mm -hmm. and like told me that he loved Jeffrey and that I was a brilliant director. And so, uh, so that's, that's when I met him. And then we, uh, we were dating uh, together is hard to say because I was gone a lot because I traveled a lot for directing, but we were, we considered ourselves to be a couple for a, a little over a year after. What that, was yeah. it though? After you met him, he sent you. Flowers. Oh yeah. I forgot. About uh, is it yeah, flowers? But, and so, then, and then what no, did he, no, no, no. no. Okay. Go ahead. No. So there's, there's a, uh, what's it called? I don't want to lose you a song. It's a, it's just an album track by Tina Turner. I know that we, you know, we came up in conversation at some point during the day and a half when I met him in Sarasota, Tina Turner came up in conversation, right? So then like three days after I arrived back in Ohio, I get a card from him and there were lyrics from that Tina Turner song written in the card. And uh, I guess I'm enough of a, I don't know, fabulous or romantic or something like that to think mm -hmm. it's faded, you know, then mm -hmm. this, this has to be, um, it was a, you know, it was he a was nice gesture. You. What's that? He was wooing you. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So uh, you, it was very effective. You guys were together. I think you were saying for about a year. Yeah. A little over a year. And then he can't, you were now in New Hampshire Right. Uh, uh, playing piano on a show called Forever Plaid, which Correct. is basically yep. barbershop quartet type music. Yep. And yep. he came up to see the show. Tell me, tell, tell me, tell everyone what happened. Right. So uh, he flew up from Sarasota. And when I think about it in retrospect, uh, I think he, this was back in the day. This is pre 9-11, right? So you could go right up to the gate to greet people who are getting off the plane. And uh, he was acting funny as soon as he got off the plane. And, but, uh, and I know that in retrospect now, I really I see it differently, right? But at the time, he was like, oh, I've been asleep on the plane, whatever. So uh, anyway, he was going to see the show that night. And we went out to dinner before that to a nice restaurant in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I had had an offer to go and do a one-year replacement teaching position at the University of California, Davis. Mm -hmm. and. So, uh, and I had spoken to him about this before and we were going to move to California, right? He had already been talking about getting out of Sarasota. And so I brought that up at dinner again, just mentioned it in passing and he's being kind of weird again. So I pushed a little and he said, uh, I don't think I want to go to California. 
And I said, oh, well, I haven't accepted a job yet. You know, I mean, I haven't signed a contract or anything. I'll just tell them I'm not coming. And he said, it's not that easy. Or it's not that, no, not that easy. It's not that simple. And then he refused to say anything else. Oh, God. And, uh, yeah, right. And, and in his mind, I mean. To, but this is the he, first night, right? And he was there, oh, yeah. supposed and to be there for how long? For four or five days. Four or five yeah, days, yeah. Four or five days. And uh, so, and, and you know, in his mind, because he was not a performer, and I think non-performers don't, they think they understand things about performers that they don't. He was, you know, he thought, well, I can't tell you this before you go to do the show. <laughs> oh, so you're going to give us a cliffhanger like, it's not that simple, and then I'm going to go do the show? Mm -hmm. That's that's ridiculous. So I really leaned into that, and uh, he said, I don't want to talk about this before the show. And I, I said, you know, that's that's absurd. You need to tell me now what's going on. And so we had enough of that conversation before the show that I, I clearly knew what was going on and, you know, came to see the show. Yeah. So that was, that was rough. I mean, everybody has stories of some horrible breakups, right? I guess. Well, sure. But that, that does not devalue but, yours. Uh, and you know, you, for those of people who do not have not traveled and done theater, you had a, uh, kind of a, a rare thing there where you had your own room with your own bathroom. Right. Yeah. Because uh, in a lot of theater housing that I've been in, not all, but sometimes you, you know, there's like a community bathroom in the, that, that a, a handful of you share. We were staying in a house that was owned by the theater company, but I had a room where I had an attached bathroom of my own, which meant that I didn't have to come out of the room. And what I recall from that period is uh, waking up in the morning, the first thing before I opened my eyes, like was, was emotional pain. It's really, I think it's the worst prolonged period of my life. Emotional pain before I even opened my eyes, waking up, being there in my room and, uh, and not leaving. I mean, I had a deck of cards. Uh, I would sit on the floor. I, I, I cried a lot. I, you know, I had a bathroom right there. I don't think I ate much. Mm. Um, and I would just kind of stay in the room until it was time to go to the theater. And that was my saving grace. I mean, I would think about that as like, and then I will get to go do the show tonight because the adrenaline of that and the joy of doing what I practicing the art that is my profession, you know, and the fact I, I really liked the guys in the show too. We had a really good thing going. And um, so I'd go do the show and then I'd go back, go back into my room, shut myself in there. You know, my, my bedroom bath combination. That was a, it was a really dark period. And yeah. then I did the stupidest of all possible things, which is as soon as that contract ended, I went back to Sarasota to patch the relationship back up. Which and was, we're happy to say, uh, what, 28 years later, still going strong. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, just I don't kidding. know where that Brent, put that champagne um, away. <laughs> so, yeah, I went down there, and then that was just ridiculous. Like, as soon as I got there, I thought, this is this is stupid. Well, and I'll tell you something else, and I, um, I feel... I feel awkward talking about this, but it, it helps me. You know, as a theater person, 
uh, everything helps us have insight into other people's lives, right? Uh, and that's helpful when you're when you're trying an to understand artist, a character. No, no matter the art, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, I don't remember when this revelation came to me, but it was later that I realized that when I was in Sarasota, I was stalking him. Oh, because the when 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 you think about stalking. I don't know, me personally, I have a certain image in my mind of what that looks like, and it's not what I was doing. But I would, so it's, I guess it's low-level stalking, and it wasn't like I was calling and leaving threatening messages on the phone or something. I wasn't I wasn't going full-blown fatal attraction. But uh, You guys didn't eat rabbit? Remember, no, okay. no. So, uh, like, I remember every night when I left the theater, because I had a theater job there at the dinner theater, and when I left the theater, on my way to where I was staying, well, it wasn't on my way, it was a few blocks out of my way, I would drive by the apartment building where he lived, and I would look up to his apartment to see if the light was on. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? Yes, exactly. And, but that's, I mean, that's stalking, and it's in a, in a pretty mild form, but it's stalking. I was, I was going there to check on him, and I remember at one point, uh, you know, I actually can't recall whether the light was on or off, but it was not the way I expected it to be at that hour. And I like pulled over to the side of the road. I was like, "Uh oh, why is the light on? Because he's usually in bed by now or something like that, you know? And um, fortunately, I didn't stay there long. I did go off to take that job in California. But uh, the recognition later that I was, I mean, I think that's... Uh, I was insane, right? On some, on I some level, that, that was insane behavior. I, well, I, I think that is, you were heartbroken, and yeah, well, I, I which can lead to insanity. Uh, Ask yeah. anybody who's ever spoken to me. So, um, yeah. So you, I, thank you for recounting that because, as you just said a moment ago, that was maybe the longest and most prolonged. Uh, pain, painful period of your life. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, years later when I was in school, when Brent was in school at uh, the prestigious university in Southern Illinois, which we will not name, yeah. um, you, every Valentine's Day would wear a Tina Turner shirt <laughs> that right. it, it might've just said, what's love say on the back? Or did it say the uh, whole yes. phrase on the back? On the front, there was a picture of her. No, the reason it was so perfect is there's a very angry looking picture of her on the front and on the back it said just what's love and then i think it maybe says tour 97 or something like that um but yeah what's love got to do with it was too much i i liked what's love and i would wear it yes, yes. on valentine's every day. valentine's day and you said that her face looked angry and you being somebody who went through that pain i've never known you to be somebody who really comes forward with your anger or your hurt. Right. Right. And, and I, did you, could you, did you yeah, look yeah. to that? So, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, I think, and uh, way back at the beginning of the conversation, I said, it's, you know, it was about the voice. It was about Tina Turner's voice right. because I, uh, I have heard legitimate sort of critiques, I guess, where people say, eh, she doesn't choose great material or, you know, I don't, I don't like all the material or, or whatever. I get that. She's, and she's not a, she doesn't write with a couple of exceptions. She doesn't write her own stuff. 
didn't. But uh, the thing is about that voice that I think I realized there is so much pent up rage and so much pain and anguish in that voice or the potential for it, right? And so those are things that, as you've said, I don't really do. I don't do them well. I don't, I'm not always comfortable expressing that rage or that pain for a variety of reasons. Uh, it served me pretty well. I mean, think, people think of me in one respect, right? People think of me as a patient, generally as a patient, even-tempered, kind person. Uh, but at the same time, I think it comes at a cost. And I think that's a lot of what drew me to that voice is that it was expressing what I wasn't capable of expressing myself. It was a way to sort of vicariously experience that and hear that 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 was if i could process my rage by releasing that voice into the world i would do it yeah and so in again what do we go to art for we go to art for many reasons but one of them is to express how we maybe are not able to express ourselves and you wore that shirt every Valentine's Day, and you were very proudly – you weren't, like, uh, weird about it, but you were proudly single. You were just like, I I don't have a partner. I, you know, uh, I think – Because people would ask. Because undergraduate students, they kind of think they uh, they kind of think they own you and – well, that's not always true. I think because I was open about some things with my students uh, and mm-hmm. candid with them, then they think they really own you and they can – um, they can ask you anything. Actually, I don't mean to interrupt your thought, but I can I can I tell a Kevin Crispin anecdote? Oh God, please! I don't know that you know this to this moment. Oh boy, I, uh, I had surgery in the spring of 2003. It was my last semester at SIU, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was going to be out for maybe two weeks for classes. I had scheduled the surgery. Maybe I was only out for a week and then I came back, but was only there for classes or something. I don't remember. Anyway, people really wanted to know what surgery I was having. And I would not tell anyone. I People would ask and I would say, I'm not going to tell you or something like that. Mm-hmm. And as I say, the students, they felt uh, they felt like they were owed that information from me. And I was, I did not want to have that conversation. The Kevin Crispin part of that is that uh, when I came back, you actually said to me, um, probably I'd been back about a week. And you said, well, you, you had surgery on your leg or on your knee. And uh, I said, Oh, what makes you think that? And you said, well, I know you were trying not to, but you had just a little bit of a limp. And uh, I actually had hernia surgery, and I did have a little bit of a limp because I was favoring the the site of my incision. But so there you go. There's a little Kevin Crispin involvement in the in that story. There you see. Um, I don't think I'm owed it. I just think I'm smarter than everybody else, and I'll tell <laughs> you what surgery you okay, had, Sherlock. Yeah. Even though I had had a fucking hernia surgery, you'd think I would be able to fuck. Yeah. Well. Um, okay. So, but. So, uh, uh, 
a lot of people would people ask you, Bill, when are you going to settle down? Bill, when are you going to, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, people always, yeah. People would, would ask questions about that. And, um, and that wasn't just students. I mean, it was certainly students, but other people too, other friends. There was a time I remember a very specific conversation when I was on tour once and I talked to an old friend on the phone and, uh, we talked for quite a while. And then he said, so are you seeing anybody? And I said, no. And he said, oh, that's all right. You'll find someone. And I, I was so bothered by that because it was all right that I wasn't seeing anybody, but it wasn't all right because I would find someone. It was just all right. It is okay for people to be unattached at a time in their life where they want to be, uh, however long that lasts. Right. Um, it just is so presumptuous to assume that that I needed to be comforted because I wasn't in a dating relationship. And it's, it's uh, such a difficult... Because generally people say that to you because they think it will, I assume, cheer you up or say, don't worry, yeah. they, they, because, you know, people want to be with people a lot of the time. But that doesn't mean that everybody wants to be with people always. Right. And I was not seeking that then mm -hmm. at all. So it didn't it didn't feel supportive even. I mean, it wasn't hard to forgive, but I just remember really thinking, I, no, I don't want this. Everybody calm down. <laughs> this is, you know, don't, don't you know, sort of, if I leave the room, don't sort of shoot each other long or uh, knowing pitying looks about poor single bill. Yeah. Uh, or I'm sure that I probably walked up to you at some point and said, you know, if you had somebody to take care of you after that clear knee surgery, <laughs> you would be right. a lot better off bill. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, you know, it was always coming from a, a kind, right. Exactly. But it, it's like, I think a lot of people, of course, it's coming from a, a place of kindness. Your friends say it to you, but it's hard to say to somebody, although you, you, I felt like you did it very well. You're like, well, I think you said, well, if I, if I wanted to come home to somebody, I'll get a dog. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to say to somebody, but that's not what I want because some people are like, well, what do you mean? That's not what you want. And they don't mean it. They're not trying to be uh, confrontational or contrary or or anything like that. They're just like, well, that doesn't what that doesn't compute. Well, and I yes, and I should say too, and I think I said this a lot of the time. I had lots and lots of love in my life. Yes, from my family, from my friends. Uh, yeah, there was no shortage of love in my life, and I think some people, for whatever reason, assumed that there was. So, well, and. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but yes. uh, in 2005, uh, Brokeback Mountain came out and yes. uh, this was a, this was a pretty important movie for you. And I, I believe you saw it numerous times in the theater. Is that correct? I did. I did. And one of the times you saw it with your parents. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'd seen it probably three times at that point and I was traveling through Ohio and I really wanted, now it's important for me to mention too, I think that while I did come out to my parents, then it wasn't something that was discussed. I mean, th this was information they had, right? but it never came up in conversation. And to their credit, there was no pressure from them that I was supposed to find somebody, right? You know, that I was not getting that at home. Um, but we just, we just never, never talked about it. Uh, and I think I, I don't know that I really wanted to start dialogue about it, but I, I saw this movie and I thought there is something in here that I, that I want my parents to see. And I want 
to see it with my parents. And so I contacted them. I was traveling through Ohio for business reasons, and we arranged to meet at a theater in Dayton, and we went to see the film. And uh, I had a very emotional response to this film um, many times that I saw it. And I was, and it was, that was uh, sort of magnified by the fact that I was sitting between my mother and my father. Mm. And uh, got to that part of the movie and uh, probably right, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, anybody who doesn't know Brokeback Mountain, it was right, there, right around the time that Jake Gyllenhaal's character, you find out that he's dead, I think. And, uh, you know, I felt myself tearing up and uh, I must have sniffled or something. My mother realized that I was starting to cry and she took my hand and held it through the rest of the film. And then uh, there was a time, I think months after that, <clears throat> I was home and she may have been storing this up for a while. Uh, so we sort of had the, what year was that, like 2008, 2009? Whatever that year's version was of the this conversation about what if I married a black girl, right? Because I remember we were in the TV room and they, we were the only two at home right at the moment. and. Uh, I said, I made a reference to it first. I said, you know, um, I think what I said is I'm really married to theater. Mm -hmm. I, I go to bed with theater at night. I get up with it in the morning. It's always there. Sometimes we have arguments, but it's, it's the constant in my life. So that's kind of my marriage. And, uh, and then I said, you know, I, but sometimes it's hard knowing that my shirt is not hanging in anybody's closet, which is a reference to the end of Brokeback Mountain. And mom reiterated that old point. You know, she said, you do know that if there ever was someone, we would love them. I, I just, it, it, as, you know, I know we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but it, just a shout out to your parents for being so accepting, so loving, and, and that wonderful tender moment that your mom reached over because she heard you crying and held your hand. My and parents that, are rock stars. Yeah. They're, they're heroes. They're heroes. Um, did you see their albums at the record store? <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, no. No. <laughs> so, that's so Brokeback Mountain comes out in 2005. You see it around late 2005 five, okay. or so early 2006. 2006. Yeah. You know the years. I don't. Yeah. Yep. And five years later, what happened? 2011. Right. So uh, I had just, I was on sabbatical for a year and I came back to my university job. <clears throat> and the university was, uh, as universities have been for the last decade plus, in some financial you know, experiencing some financial hardship. And so I had another colleague who was going on sabbatical for the entire year after I came back and the university wouldn't fund a replacement for that colleague. So I was going to wind up doing her job and my job both. So it was already, you know, really something to <laughs> quite an ambitious thing to dive into. Um, my brother's marriage broke up. A friend of mine from high school died. My closest colleague at the university uh, came to me one evening and said, my marriage is in a lot of trouble. Can I stay with you? Moved into my house where he stayed for about a year and a half. Um, uh, another friend of mine 
in Macomb got cancer. My best friend from college, uh, he and his wife split up. I'm very happy to say they've been back together for a number of years now, which is a great relief because I love them both. So a lot of stuff happened. Like everything seemed to be just falling apart. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was rough. Yeah. Everywhere I turned, there was crisis. And I was overloaded at work on top of all. And somehow in that, um, I was open to the idea of starting to date someone. And I don't know what the connection is between those two things, but it kind of felt like time that something could happen mm -hmm. and did. And, and I met Derek, to whom I've now been married for eight and a half years. And so that's, yeah, that's the, the happy ending to a very happy ending. That's, and uh, what was the lyric? Uh, by the way, you, you shared a number of, of lyrics, and I know you said, you know, Tina Turner didn't always write her own material, or often did not. Um, and maybe we can put oh, these. Can I talk about that for a second? Yeah, yeah. But, but go ahead. If there's, one, yeah. if there's one thing we really understand as theater people who've done some acting, it is that you, what you want is to find the truth in what was written. It's not that you have to write the words mm -hmm. that you're saying on stage. Mm -hmm. You have to find a way to make them your truth. So, anyway, and in listening to, to all these songs, and I think we should put these lyrics that you shared uh, mm -hmm. in the show notes, uh, is she is a wonderful interpreter of these yes. songs. Yes. And it, it's, it's all you said, raw and emotion. But what was the lyric that you thought of shortly after you met Derek and maybe you were thinking, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, a lot over the, we, we also, we were living apart at the time, 250 miles apart. So there was a lot of, I did a lot of driving. Yes, you did. And, uh, and one of my go-to things to do was to listen to, you know, my CDs in the car, those CDs, some of them were Tina Turner, right? And so I heard this so many times, and there were so many times that I thought this during that process of our first few months. Um, I've been thinking about my own protection. It scares me to feel this way. So in what's love got to do with it, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's the bridge. I've, I've been taking on a new direction, and I have to say, I've been thinking about my own protection. It scares me to feel this way. And it did. It was um, not just because I talked myself into it for years of being by myself, but, and not just, I mean, certainly because of that, the pain of that original breakup. But it was, it was scary. And what people have been saying to me for years, you know, I, I kind of remained an adolescent into my 40s because I was single, I guess, in a way. But what people always say is, you know, it's worth the pain, the potential for pain. It's worth it because because of what you get out of it and so forth. Right? But I was coming face to face with that. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about my own protection. It scares me to feel this way, to put aside what I, you know, to stop wearing that shirt on valentine's day okay this is right. a big decision <laughs> and put that shirt uh you know to in a closet right um, the, the yeah. way that you're and you know i think anybody listening to this right now could probably name five ten song lyrics that they've thought they've listened to and they have gone to 
uh, over and over and over again. The one I shared with you, the Dylan one, people tell me it's a sin to know and feel too much within. I still believe she was my twin. You know, we all have these and universal universally music is a language that we all share. Um, Bill, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. For, for sharing these stories, these experiences. A- as we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to say or, or maybe that you, were, you, had, you did not get a chance to say uh, before we go? Um, yeah, you know what? I think there is one thing I want to mention quickly that um, actually maybe two. Yes. But I think Tina's presence was really – they're both about Tina Turner – was really significant because of the the enormous when I saw her in concert too. There's this enormous degree of self confidence that is felt so amazing and admirable. And I realized that I couldn't. It, it's it was hard for me to admire that kind of self confidence in a man because my experience with men who have that kind of self confidence, that absolute self confidence, is that they would usually in my life when I've encountered men like that. If they're straight, they maybe mock me. Mm. And if they're gay, they ignore me. Mm. So I couldn't admire a man in that category. Mm-hmm. Right. But but this was an opportunity to place that admiration there. I did want to share that. And, um, and yeah, I think the struggles, I mean, this is the old hat story about Tina Turner, right? Like she went through a lot. She's a survivor, blah, blah, blah. But it's true that, I mean, we, we look to those people who have, who have endured a lot. And we say, I can do this. I can, you know, swallow down. I had other choices I could have made, but it it made it easier. Maybe when you have a hero (laughs) to swallow down some casual bigotry, Mm. Mm. you know, and, um, people have survived worse. Yeah. And uh, boy, uh, anybody who doesn't know the Tina, Tina Turner story, uh, it is well worth um, looking into uh, and to see how, where she came from, the amount of strength that woman had. And, um, and you'll, you'll learn more about why she was able to channel those emotions so well. Right. Well, Bill, thank you so much, my friend. And uh, really, really appreciate you coming on um, for everybody else. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Um, If you do like the show, please tell your friends. If you don't like the show, please tell your friends that they they should choose for themselves if they like the show. And we would like for them to download all of the episodes and listen to them. And then they can make a very informed decision. No, uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Um, Again, if you are interested in coming on, please email sadtimeskc at gmail.com. And I'll end uh, the way I end or try to end most episodes, which is uh, a reminder that there's always room for kindness and grace. um, And especially when you are dealing with yourself, Uh, I forget it every day. And it's just a good thing to remember that there's always room for kindness and grace. And we'll see you next time on sad times. You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.